Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast. As always, my name is Mark. Here with me today is Matt. I've got a beer and a cup of coffee. I am so ready to go. And we've got Orion. Hello. And for the first time on the podcast, we have Ben. Hey, everyone. And today we are going to be talking about three of the hottest games of the last couple of years. We're going to be talking about Blood Rage uh, from Eric Lang and Cool Meaning or Not. We're going to be talking about Scythe, the massive Kickstarter success from Stonemaier Games. And then we're going to be talking about Food Chain Magnate. But let's first talk about Blood Rage because we just finished playing it, actually. And once again, the infamous Loki strategy reigns supreme, where Ben basically just kept losing his troops and gaining points. I guess starting off, that's one of the first things I want to mention about Blood Rage is that that strategy seems incredibly powerful, and I honestly don't know how to beat it. Masochism works. <laughs> Actually, after finishing the game, I, I tweeted to Eric Lang in hopes that he'd give me some kind of help, and, you know, he's a busy man. <laughs> I didn't get any response yet. <laughs> But anyway, Blood Rage, as uh, as you can probably tell, is based on Norse mythology, and it's honestly it's a very strange game I find because it's a combat game, but the way you get points and actually win the game can often be very disconnected from what you would think it would be. So in the game, it has this major drafting component where the game is played over three different rounds and. Before each of the rounds, you have a draft, and that gives you combat cards, gives you special abilities, it gives you additional monsters you can summon to fight on your side. So it's a draft, just like you'd find in something like Seven Wonders, but it's designed to help you in the actual placing units on the board, combat, fight over area, that kind of thing. And the draft is a massive deal in this game, not only because it can give you large boosts in combat, but because it's really the only way to generate points. There's very little points available just inherently without counting the cards. The only way you can get points is from winning battles, and it's fairly low number of points compared to what you would find on the cards. So it's, it's a strange game in that you're fighting over area and you're trying to beat your opponents in combat, but then you have to actually justify that by playing cards that actually give you points for that. I think one of the, the reasons that the Loki strategy is so powerful is because there is very little that you can do to combat it because as Loki, you're trying to get people to kill you. So you just go in places where you know there's a valuable objective. You end up in, in you end up in Valhalla yeah, and then right. you get rewarded. Yes, exactly. So it, if I can put a bunch of low-value troops somewhere that I know that Mark and Geesman are going to want to take over, then I just have to wait for them to come in and kill me. So yeah, so basically is if you're drawing a lot of Loki cards, you're just trying to stick your nose everywhere and then just lose. And the other part, and, and this maybe this is the aspect of the Loki strategy that drives me crazy the most, is that when you initiate any kind of combat in Blood Rage, everyone has to play a card face down, and they reveal it simultaneously, and if you win the combat, your card gets discarded, but you win the combat. If you lose the combat, you lose your troops, but you get to keep the card. So, if you have cards that just benefit you from losing, you just get to play them over and over and over again because you can't lose them because you're losing the battle. Some of those cards are really annoying, too. So one round, I remember, I think, Mark, you had a card that leached victory points, basically, from the winner of the combat. So I maybe won three combats that round, but rather than getting 12 victory points, I ended up getting six victory points, and you got six victory points. So it seems it seems that there are just a bunch of these perverse incentives in in the game and, and, and like maybe that's just the way you have to play it but i found that frustrating yeah maybe it's just a situation where you know like i talked about in an article from a couple weeks ago the foo strategies first order optimal strategies it seems like that's what the loki strategy is here yeah it's the simplest way to do well it's it's the most amount of points from the least amount of effort because you don't 
you just kind of have to play as many troops as you can in, in as many different areas as you can and, and then just lose a lot. So I, maybe it's just that we don't we haven't gotten into the strategy of the game deep enough, but the game it's such a swingy game and there's so many things that you can't keep track of unless you've like memorized the decks that it doesn't really seem worth it to become good enough at the game to defeat the strategy. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it's yeah. really I I really want to like the game, but the more I play it, the less I like it. There are at least a couple positives. One is that the game looks awesome. The minis are fantastic. Oh yeah, the minis are just spectacular. They're, they're really good, and it feels awesome to get them. Maybe you know, maybe part of why at least I've been doing poorly is I generally try to get these special titans or, or monsters on my side when maybe they're not quite as powerful as, as I as I think they are, but they look awesome. And partially, I think maybe in this game. The way the board was set up might have favored the Loki strategy even more because I think in order to combat that strategy, you have to win through sheer numbers. And it was very hard in that game to get your maximum unit size up. In fact, Matt was really the only one to successfully do that. Just to explain the game a bit more, in each of the different sections, there's a bonus you get for pillaging that area. And there are basically three traits that you have. You have your, your rage each round, which is again your currency. You have the number of victory points you get for winning battles, and then you have your maximum number of units you can have on the board. And in this particular game, there was only one spot on the board where you could increase your maximum unit size. Right, yeah. And there are other ways to do that, like quests are a kind of card that you can play that if you complete them at the end of the round, you can increase one of those stats as well. Um, If you win, what's the center called? You drizzle, and you raise all of your stats one. So there, are, there are other ways to raise those things, even if a round into the game, there's only one place to do a certain thing. But yeah, I went for the strategy of just actually having sheer numbers and power to win the battles I took place. And part of the way that I'm bent, like that's what I want to do. I want to win battles and know that I'm going to win battles going in. And so that was my goal to build up the build up troops to do that. That they didn't seem to translate to victory points as well as I'd like. Yeah, so that's, I mean, maybe maybe the game we just played is just kind of an outlier in terms of that particular strategy doing well. But again, I, I like the game, but it seems so variable and so unpredictable. Like you can't, you can't account for the cards that people have, the decisions they're going to make. Maybe, and, and, and then when point, you get into into battles which you can't necessarily control when the battles happen, someone could just have a certain battle card that just is really annoying for what you're trying to do. Even if they don't win, like I had some super powerful battle cards that I just threw away because people had the, everyone else throws away their cards and Mm -hmm. put a new card down. You just can't account for that stuff. I had one thing that I think the game does well. I found in each round, there are three rounds, after we've all drafted our hands and we have some idea of a strategy we're going to do, kind of deciding what order you're going to do things, managing what quest cards you're going to put down, when you're going to get units out into the board, when you're going to pillage, in order to give yourself the best advantage. I kind of like that aspect of the game. You know, just because if, if you wait for someone else to do their thing, then maybe they'll have units free to come over and mess up your thing. I find that... I don't enjoy a lot of the decisions that come up in Blood Rage, but that managing of what I'm going to do when is is a little bit interesting. Yeah, because that's based more around it's based more around trying to predict what other people will do based on public information rather than based on guessing what cards they might have in their hands. I, I will give you that it's an interesting part of the game, and it's, I think it's a lot more interesting than the actual combat. You can really get backed into a corner. Uh, I was in a situation where I had a decent start, but then uh, I slowed down a bit in the middle, and the third round I had planned out a combo that would have given me a ton of points, but I couldn't get the ordering right, and I was backed into into a position where I had to initiate battles where I really wasn't ready to fight. And if you're not playing a Loki strat, losing a battle is so crushing 
because it puts you so far behind and it's it pretty much just ruins that round for you and there's no coming back from it if it's any battle of significant size and maybe it's just one of those games where in a full four player game there are just going to be two people who get knocked out like halfway through like they're they're just going to get put in a position where they can't reasonably expect to come back and we're going to talk about another game later on food chain magnet that kind of has the same situation but we like it a lot more so maybe maybe <laughs> this isn't something that's that's necessarily a fault of the game maybe it's just a matter of our expectations maybe we we expect that kind of situation to happen more in a cutthroat heavy euro game rather than a game with a bunch of you know a, a troll miniature throwing a rock that plays in an hour. An hour I will. I will say when I have minis that look that awesome, <laughs> I expect that when I get them out and I start beating people up with them, that I'm going to win. And so there's a dissonance when that isn't necessarily the best strategy. At least like you would have to do something else with that to actually win. That that just kind of feels wrong. <laughs> I think from a strategy perspective, you have to recognize who's going for Loki and not initiate battles with them, because they will get more out of losing than you will out of winning. If you're not doing Loki, you have to power yourself up, so you have to pillage. So I, I think the other players who... Either everyone has to draft Loki cards so that they're so diluted that no one has a critical mass of them, or the other player, other two or three players have to recognize who's going Loki and kind of box them out of as many places as possible. Which creates this weird metagame that, I don't know, it's not as fun. Well, and it's also very hard to box someone out in this game because when you place units, you can essentially place them anywhere. Yeah. When you move units, you can move them essentially anywhere. The only limitation is that each area has the maximum total number of units that can be in it. And, then... and, and that's what I'm talking about, that max units per province is really... I think the only way to limit where Loki can poke his nose in. Yeah, but to be able to crowd the board that much, you have to... Everyone else has to increase their, their maximum troop size, which means they have to initiate pillages and, and battles. Yeah. And you, you, if you, if you want to play it that way, you have to play in such a way that when you are initiating a combat, there cannot be an open spot for Loki to move into the combat, because Loki almost every time will move in there, especially if Loki has the card that I had early in this game that lets you place a unit whenever you lose a battle. I, yeah, that's true. I, I think that was possibly the strongest card that I had, which I was very surprised by because I, when I, I almost didn't draft it when I saw it because I didn't, I didn't think it would be that good, and I was very wrong about that. Yeah, now that I think about it, you might be right, Ryan. I, I think when there's a strong Loki strat, the other players have to recognize that that's going to accumulate more points than them simply trying to win battles. And they have to understand that they all need to not fight each other and kill Loki everywhere and get their own points. Or they have to try to box him out so he can't sacrifice all of his units to continue generating economy and points. Because that's what makes the Loki engine so strong, is that losing battles, which is much easier to do than win, he keeps his card instead of losing, as the winner does, and you generate points, and his battle cards generate more resources for him, either victory points or, in the first round, additional rage. So the, the strategy very much feeds into itself, and you generate this positive feedback loop where you can keep going and keep going and generate more and more and do more of what you want to do. And I think if you want to have a good chance of winning this game, you have to figure out how to limit Loki's synergy there with his own cards. I keep saying this, but I guess it's one of those games where you know there's there's a strategy that will win the game, and the other players have to recognize and, and fight against that strategy collectively. It's almost like a weird prisoner's dilemma or game theory problem. It's the same thing that you, you see in Seven Wonders, right? If you allow one person to go full science, they're going to win the game. Right. And the other players have to recognize that and block it. I think it works well in Seven Wonders, but I don't know if it works in Blood Rage. But I don't know why... It works fine in Seven Wonders and doesn't in this situation. I don't know. Maybe I need to well, play the game a few more times. It, I guess it's a lot harder to block it in this situation. 
In Seven Wonders, there's less of an opportunity cost of taking a card that doesn't directly work with your strategy, because anything, almost anything you take will give you either more resources or more victory points. And in this game, you can take cards that would pay, that would cost half your rage for the turn, and not give you anything if you're not feeding into that strategy. Yeah, you're exactly right there. I, I think with Blood Rage, you could get a combat strategy to work after you'd played it a dozen times or something, but the Loki strategy is so much easier to execute that it's dominant for earlier on players. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So, summing up Blood Rage, my hot take here, it's a very bizarre game <laughs> that looks like a normal combat game, and it seems to have this very dominant foo strategy that I'm not sure about. I feel it's strange that Blood Rage came out after Comet. Because to me, Comet seems like the kind of game where someone saw Blood Rage and went, that's an interesting game. Let's make it a little bit tighter and more strategic and better. And then they went on and made Comet. At least it looks cool. It looks amazing. It looks very the minis cool. are spectacular. Although so not... I guess that's partially why it's it's gotten so much success. But... but there are other games that look really cool. Yes. Oh, is that your transition? That was a segue. That was a segue. <laughs> not one with two wheels. Did you know... The man who invented the Segway died after driving a Segway off of a cliff. No, was it intentional? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Look it up. Blood Rage right now is ranked number 17 on Board Game Geek. Does it deserve it? No. No, no way. No. I agree. Yeah. Around it are masterpieces such as Through the Ages, Mage Knight, Power Grid. Uh, it's I like Bob this Robinson about his Russo, which we're super excited about. Oh, that's a that's a yeah. Robinson Crusoe sitting at twenty one. I like this about as much as Mage Knight. Ooh, those are fighting Them's words. Fighting you words. should play Mage Knight more often. <laughs> I'm on the opposite side of the table from Orion and Mark. <laughs> we need to get you into the Mage Knight cult. I'm scared of the Mage Knight's cult. I, I, I do think okay, I'm keeping it, my distance. I do think I it does cut. suffer with. All right, back to the segue. Speaking of games that look good, Scythe. Scythe looks really good. Scythe Scythe is amazing. amazing. I recently looked up the email that I sent to you, Matt. Yeah. When the game was first announced. Uh huh. You should read it. Let me find it real quick. Here we go. I, I linked to the Kickstarter announcement and said, "Quote." I feel like I need to own this game just to look at the box art all day long. And now let us stare appreciatively. Appreciatively, that's the word I'm thinking of. At the box art. Twelve hours later, we're back. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Scythe. A game with amazing box art. And we spoke of cognitive dissonance before, and I think that embodies this game (laughs) because the game looks like this epic adventure war game story and it's 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 a nifty little engine building euro game we both like this game but we do like the game i like we feel it we feel different very differently about many aspects of it i don't feel any cognitive dissonance i look at that game and i i say that's gonna be well clunky for one it's not clunky. I don't know. It's not. It's not clunky. It's like the kitchen sink design theory, right? Where you yeah, throw, the kitchen sink's a good way of. You throw in every mechanism that you think is cool, and they are cool mechanisms, and they're fun. and they're even cooler mechs. Ah. But it's not as epic as it seems. Well, first of all, it's surprisingly short. It's surprisingly short, and I would say that. The lack of epicness that you speak of is probably purely due to the shortness of it. We'll talk probably more about Terra Mystica at some point. That's a really long game. This is like half of Terra Mystica. Yeah, yeah, it's like half the time. It's really about making your engine go. 
and then the game ends. It's a cube, <laughs> it's a cube pusher in the most literal way as you move <laughs> lots of cubes. No game has ever made pushing cubes feel more satisfying than this game. Oh, you you haven't read the the opening paragraph of my review, which will actually be up the day before this podcast. So you all at home will know what I'm talking about, but Scythe puts more pleasure into a single act of moving a cube <laughs> than I think any other game in existence. So true. Okay, you should actually Okay, look, you should actually talk about what this game is. What is Scythe, really? Yeah, it's it's a little nifty engine building Euro game. So you have let's ignore the mechs, because you're gonna ignore the mechs most of the game anyway. You have this player board, and it's Maybe cool. that's why I keep beating you. <laughs> you never go for mechs. <laughs> I did last game. <laughs> you fought I'm sorry. Once. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Proceed. Okay. You have this player mat, and it's divided into four sections. And one of the new things that I, I assume is new in board games is that there's top-level actions and bottom-level actions. So you choose one of the four quadrants on your player board, and you can do the top-level action or the bottom-level action or both in that segment. So a lot of the game is setting yourself up so you can take both top- and bottom-level actions. And, and an example of the kinds of actions you can produce on where you have workers. You can gain combat strength. It's, it's very basic stuff, and those are the top-level ones where there's very little cost to them and you're gaining something. The bottom level actions all have cost to them, so you're generating resources throughout the game, and you use those resources to pay for bottom level actions. And those are building a mech, or our favorite cube pushing thing, the upgrade action, where you take one cube from the top of your board and move it to the bottom of your board. And when you take it off of the top of your board, the top level action, it makes that action a little bit better and then you put it on the bottom level action and it slightly reduces the cost of that action. And as you place it, the, the, it s- the cost icon just disappears. Yeah. And, you, and when you take it off the top, the, the benefit is revealed. It just you. revealed and you can see it and you feel good when you pick it up and then you feel even more good when you put it down. Yeah, and as you do it, a small choir of angels appears above you <laughs> and does their thing <laughs> does their thing what an ugly what? end to a sense about angels what is their thing mark know, this the, thing the, sounds kind of sketchy when, when, you, when, you, when you like in a cartoon or something when a choir what do they do they just kind of usually they, don't, they sing they i think that's what it always is but they're just kind of singing a single note i don't know what that's called yeah that <laughs> Really I think singing? that's singing. It's, kind of yeah, singing. it's still singing. I mean, I guess what... it's, okay. <laughs> Way to trivialize angels, Mark. Yeah, Mark. <laughs> Sorry. And there are other little things. There's a recruit action, which has no correspondence with the word recruit at all. But <laughs> It's just moving a circle to another place, you... gaining a benefit and making your actions more efficient. <laughs> but once again, when you pick it up, it uncovers something. When you put it down, it covers something up. Yeah, we got to talk about these player boards. So if you've played Terra Mystica, you know they have really cool player boards where as you build buildings, you remove the building from your little player board and it reveals more income for you. And it's amazing. Scythe brings us to the next level. And it's awesome. It also has indented player boards, so there's actually like little slots for each building or cube or whatever. That was my favorite part of the player boards. I think the way this might be playing at home is that, first of all, we're overstating this, and secondly, <laughs> we're massive dorks, but don't <laughs> knock it till you try it. The it second part so is good. definitely true, <laughs> and the first part is not. <laughs> The game, it's all about trying to economize your actions. Here. Yeah, and it's its appropriate that we spend so much time talking about this, moving the cubes, because it so well represents your economy. Like, your economy is represented by these two boards that you get. One gives you your character, which is awesome. The first two games I played, I was Anna, and I had a bear, like a military bear. It was just like a bear. And that the bear's name is Vocek. Vocek. 
which is an actual bear you should Google right now that Didn't was it, in the Polish military. It got like the Polish version of the Purple Heart or something like that. Yeah, it True was awesome. Story. So you're like topboard gives you your character, but then also gives you a handful of unique traits. It gives you one special power. And then the bottom board is also randomized, and it gives you these actions we've been talking about, which are in slightly different combinations on each board. But yeah, the game really is about giving yourself the best economy that puts you in position to score these handful of to, categories to, at to the end. In the game, there are a bunch of objectives which generally are maxing out certain categories of placing all your mechs, placing all your workers, achieving max power. Max upgrades, which are the yeah, cubes. Yeah. So each time you hit the top, you top out on each one of these categories, you place a star, and when someone's placed six stars, the game immediately ends, and each star is worth points, and each hex you control is worth points, and extra resources are worth points, and so on. But the whole economy aspect of the game is so well integrated into this board that it's both satisfying to do all the things but like that's that's what the game is it's it's making yeah you're going to be staring at your player board most of the game and the reason that this becomes really interesting is because once you select one of the four action spaces you can't select it immediately after that you have to move your pawn to a different spot so a lot of the time during the game you're just especially when it's not your turn you're just going to be staring at this board and trying to figure out how you're going to bounce your pawns around to do the most efficient actions. And, and to me, that, that planning and that strategizing is a really satisfying part of the game. And it should be noted that the player turns are really short because you're doing one thing. And you might have it planned out five or six you know, turns in advance. I've never planned that far far really? ahead. Maybe a couple of turns, but maybe that's my problem. But 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 yeah, you can you can plan out while other people are taking their well, turns you fairly. Can, you can plan things like I'm going to take the move action and set up my workers, and then I'm going to produce on those hexes I moved my workers to, and then I'm going to collect, get more resources and make yeah. a mech or something. Yeah, and that can be your kind of progression over the next couple. Of I've months. I've had like general long term strategy, and then maybe had three turns planned out. I think that's the most I've actually ever had planned out. Okay, maybe I plan but, out more and that's why... I, I mean, you have a general those. general strategy, for sure. Yeah, but I find that really satisfying that, to me, most of the game happens when it's not my turn because the strategy's really in the planning of it. Well, and and would then you on say, your turn, you just execute that. Yeah, would you say it feels like the game is an awful lot of doing things? Isn't that all games? <laughs> As opposed to what? As opposed to not doing overthinking things. Overthinking or I don't know. I feel like when you take a turn, one, you can they're short because you can be ready to take it. And two, you're always doing something interesting. It's got a very like high density of actually doing things. Well, I think that's just a function of the fact that the turns are so quick yeah sure yeah because you're just doing one thing as opposed to say like through the ages right your turn is like seven different decisions or more in in scythe it's literally one decision and you do one thing and then it takes 10 or 15 seconds and you're done yeah your actions are very discreet and there's not a lot of branching decision trees within an action right so that's where i'm saying that the the strategy and a lot of the thought of the game is thinking about how you're going to play out multiple turns because in, in any other game you know maybe your actions maybe you have a certain number of action points or something and you'd be doing what in scythe happens over five turns instead in one turn anyway that part of the game i enjoy because your turn happens so quick and it comes back around you so quick um, it really kind of speeds the game on. And again, what is a kind of a surprisingly short game? I mean, we finished a three-player game once in under an hour, which really surprised me. It Once you have your engine going, it can end a lot sooner than you think it might. Yeah, let's talk about the point scoring system in a little bit more depth. The really interesting part of the point scoring system is that there's this resource called popularity that you can gain through various means. And that determines the multiplier for your points. So there are three levels to it. And say, placing a star, which is accomplishing one of the objectives at the lowest level of popularity, 
gives you two points per star. But then if you go up to level two in popularity, it's three points per star and then four points per star at the highest, which I think is a really cool way of doing points. Yeah, it's not immediately apparent how it works. It's kind of this orthogonal axis that multiplies your objectives because the objectives are what you're trying to accomplish, but then you're also trying to accumulate this popularity that makes that objective worth more. So it's a multiplier on your other actions or your other objectives. Yeah, well, I think that's the best part of the exploration. So, again, it may sound like we're throwing out a bunch of aspects of the game, but that's how the game is. There's just all these little discrete mechanisms that are just thrown into it. They all work together, but it's very broad. Yeah, and and you'll notice we have not mentioned the actual game board yet. And that's, that's appropriate for how the game works. Yeah, and so on the actual game board where things happen, uh, maybe a, th- a quarter of the hexes have little exploration tokens on them. And when your leader moves to one of those hexes, you draw from a deck. And it's going to show you some kind of scenario with, with, again, this really cool art. So maybe you see someone with a bear, which represents your, your leader, and there's a sheep pasture and the fence is broken. And it's going to give you three different options. And a lot of that plays into popularity because this is how you're kind of interacting with the populace. So it might be, you know, repair the fence and, you know, you lose a, a wood and gain three popularity or steal the sheep and then you get, you know, you lose popularity and gain food and money or... Enslave the citizens. Yeah, yeah. Gain a work. <laughs> yeah, you get some big bonus and you lose a lot of popularity. So I find that that aspect kind of cool where you're actually interacting with the locals and a lot of it hinges on popularity yeah those explorations do and thematically the game's great and it makes sense that you would be interacting with the local populations as you go trouncing through the bolshevik countryside yeah and I, i i almost wish that that aspect of the game there was more of it yeah and i guess because the game's so broadly designed and there's so many different discrete mechanisms that you could say that for a lot like i wish a lot more of the game was centered around the foundry because i think that's really cool that's the center tile that's the that's the dead middle of the game board and when you go there when your leader goes there rather you get to draw from another deck which gives you a choice of a brand new action so a fifth action that's just another top and bottom action yeah top and bottom actions and it's worth three hexes for endgame scoring. I wish there was more to kind of drive people towards the foundry and it seems like more combat there. It seems like the cases where it's been used well is when someone decides they're going to go for it as part of their strategy to get one of the bonus action cards. And people have used that. I've seen people use that to great effect. I've never done it except by like just kind of to do it late game. But it's never been integral to my strategy. So yeah, that's Scythe. It's an efficiency game. It's about engine building. And again, to me, I I really enjoy the game. But every time I play it, I think about how it could have been more epic and have more adventure and just more in this world. I guess that's a testament to how good the art is. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I don't even think we've mentioned the actual mech figures, which are just... Oh, yeah, the mechs. Uh, unbelievable. Like, each faction has their own unique mech, which are just amazing. One looks like an AT-AT. One looks like a boat with six legs. Yeah, the spider boat. The spider boat. Well. Oh, it's spiders of eight legs. Yeah, insect boat. I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgive you. Combat is a lot less part of the game than you think it might be. Like you see these fire. mechs, and you think you're going to it's going to just be a mech showdown in the middle of the board. And it's not... Yeah, it's not. You might fight once or twice over the course of the game, you or, can, or not at all. But, but, the, the, but mechs, the cost the cost of combat is just so severe. It is, but the mechs... The main point of mechs is that it lets you move your workers around very efficiently. Right. So the, the game ultimately ends up being this efficiency exercise in engine building, which is a lot of fun because it's set in this fantastic universe with the amazing art and the story and the 
mechs and everything, it does end a little sooner than you'd like, and it's something I would enjoy playing for longer just because it's so satisfying. Yeah, that's one thing we should talk about is that the game almost always ends very abruptly. Again, as, as we said before, the game ends when you when someone accomplishes six of the objectives, the, the communal objectives, and places their six star. But it really ramps up exponentially, so it'll take a while to get your first star and your second star. Once someone's at four stars, you got to watch out for the turn where they're going to place their last two. I just want to mention real quick, they just announced an expansion for Scythe, oh, yeah. the Wind Gambit. And... From what I've read, it introduces an airship, which is going to look amazing, I'm sure, given, oh, yeah. given how cool the mechs oh, look. I've seen the mock-ups for them. They look, they look awesome. And then the expansion module that I think they're saying is actually improving the game a lot is the new end conditions, which actually ties the end of the game to something other than placing of these, these stars for finishing different categories of the game. So that's interesting. Maybe that will let us have longer games. Yeah, I'm I'm really hoping that that module works out because I think that could really make this game shine. Yeah. I think it's a good game right now, but every time I play it, I'm a little bit annoyed it's not something different. That might be the kind of nudge it needs to be more epic or more focused. I think if you stepped back and took away the theme and everything, looked at it purely from a game design perspective, it falls a little short of some other games in the same vein, but it's just really fun to play, and so I like it. Yeah, it's, like, it's just fun. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Oh. Okay, so final take. Scythe, even though it came out last year, is already to number six on the Board Game Geek Top 100. Does it deserve it? Yes. Really? You think so? You think it's it's deserving to be in the top ten? I mean, I'm not saying... Is, do you think it's the sixth best game ever, but... It is, is not it? the sixth best game ever, but it deserves the credit that, that it's it's been given by the, by the community. It's just a great game. All right, what do you think, Orion? Does it deserve it? I think that's probably a little bit high, but I don't have a problem with it being very popular right now. I don't think... It quite deserves it. It's a fine game. It's fun. Again, the artwork is ridiculously good. Just the graphic design of the game. Well, and it's to be expected from Stonemaier Games. Like, this is what they do. Really high quality, thoughtfully designed, and thoughtfully presented games. Cookies. Cookies. Cookie break. The Wind Gambit sounds so cool. Yeah. It's going to be good. Psyched. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh goodness! Yes, my pun for the podcast. <laughs> All right, moving on to a game that may actually deserve to be on the top ten on Board Game Geek instead of Scythe at least according to me, and that's Food Chain Magnate, which we're having a ton of fun with. This is a fabulous game. I saw a review of it and was instantly interested and bought it that day. We came home and played it a few weeks ago and then again last weekend, and I just, it's a blast. It's, it's, it's so funny, too, where the situations you get put in where you're making your uh, management tree to run your food chain and you're putting these errand boys under 10 layers of management, and you've got your recruiting girls direct reporting directly to the CEO, and you're scrambling for these different resources, and then you have your marketing blasting out billboards right outside people's windows to get them to buy burgers. Uh, it's just, it's a hilarious game, wonderful strategy. It's, it's a blast, I love it. Yeah, I wrote about this in my review, but it may be the funniest game I've ever played which is super weird because it's also a really, really cutthroat Euro game. It's a game where the first time you play Food Chain Magnate, you are going to lose, and you will probably lose very badly. Like, it's mean, and you have to kind of know some very basic strategy to have any kind of competence at it. 
that being said, the rule book and the, the intro guide or whatever specifically recommends you cut out some of the harder and more cutthroat parts of it to help people into the game easier. Yeah, and actually I had an interesting discussion on the, the board game subreddit about this, that the intro game they describe cuts out like all the fun and interesting parts of the game. Like <laughs> Even looking back, even though you know I lost horrifically in my first game because I didn't do the right things, I don't think we should have cut it out. What other people were saying they did for their first game is... They just played the normal rules up to the point where the bank breaks for the first time, and then they just start over. Yeah, that makes sense. And that I think that's probably like the best idea. way to go. Yeah. By then, you've you've figured out if your strategy is just going to leave you way in the dust. Yeah, and that's one of the fascinating things about Food Chain Magnate, is that the very early game is incredibly important. Like, like the first three turns. The first, literally the first decision you make is extraordinarily important for the entire rest of the game. Because... Just determine everything. Yeah, be, because of these, what are they called, reward cards? Milestone cards. Milestones. The, the thing is, the first three or so turns determine so much of your strategy and bonuses, but all of your money will be earned in the last two turns. So it's this weird situation where you set up your... Or you point your engine in one direction... But you have to, you know, work it out, and you don't earn the rewards from that. You don't reap the benefits for another ten turns or something, and then you make a killing at the end if you've done it right. Yeah, well, let's back up a bit and actually explain in how this game works, though, before we talk more about that. It's a game about trying to be the best food chain magnate. Um, <laughs> you want to? So thank you, Mark. <laughs> you want to take over this square little town with your? Fast food goods. Yes. The game is played kind of on two fronts. You have your town, which starts out all innocent and pure and without any desires. It's all random. You, there are these square tiles and you lay them out into a grid. And it's going to show where houses are, where the roads are situated, and where the drink stands are. Part of the game is placing your restaurant on that board and placing advertisements there to cause people to have desires, the real meat of the game is your personal management structure. This is a game about corporate management, and that sounds really boring. But, but it's, it's not. It's just, so Just fun. wait till you see these corporate managers. <laughs> oh, so man. you start with a single card, and it very happily exclaims, the CEO is you, and... The CEO can hire one person. So the first turn of the game, you hire one person. And then that person's going to have some ability. Maybe you get a recruiting girl who can hire one person also. And then on turn two, you can hire two people. And it, it's double the fun. And as you hire people, you build up this management chain, literally a, a tree. And it just increases the number of things you can do on your turn. Each person you've hired does a thing yes and so you're getting people which is fun and then they're just letting you on future turns do more things the things you can do are basically hire people you can train people to kind of upgrade them to better versions of the people you initially hired you trade them in for usually adult versions so the first <laughs> level <laughs> The first level of the people you hire, which you all don't pay, who you don't pay, all seem to be children, including the managers, who look like they're about ten years old. You can hire people. You can upgrade them through training. You can obviously have cooks who cook food, so you can actually sell food. You have people who go out and just gather drinks, including the highest tier. This is another ridiculous part of the game. The highest tier drink gatherer is a Zeppelin pilot. I don't know how they're getting the drinks from a Zeppelin, but you just go out and gather drinks instead of making them. I don't know. A bucket, I assume. <laughs> just a bucket hanging off of the yeah, Zeppelin? Yeah, it's, it's like a well, except without the ground part. Sure. Don't think about it too hard. What else can you... Oh, uh, advertisers and a bunch of managers, because your CEO person, you can only manage three people and once you fill that up you need more managers to be able to manage more people and since 
the first level of every type of person is free and doesn't require a salary, you end up at some point in the game inevitably with just a load of children managers to get enough spots to fill all the rest of your people in before you can actually pay people. It's hilarious. You build this recursive binary tree of child managers managing other child managers who eventually manage someone who does something for you. Exactly. And so you're building this up and getting more abilities, and eventually someone's going to advertise. And that's when the purity of this town is broken forever, when someone gets a first-level advertiser and places a billboard directly next to a house. Because the billboards only work if they're right up against the house. And then the house starts populating with food. And then at the end of each round, you see who can fulfill those desire orders, and that's how you generate money. But the problem is that advertising is universal. A billboard you place doesn't necessarily mean that the results of that advertisement will be in your favor. One of the really interesting parts of the game to me is that you have to be careful with how you plan your advertisements because you may just inadvertently be giving someone else the win. I've only played this once, and uh, as was mentioned, I went all in on the lemonade, and it worked for about two turns before everyone else caught up on the lemonade production, at which point I was only serving maybe one house worth of lemonade. And like I think Orion or someone was better positioned right next to this other house, and so I just set him up to make money. Yeah, and this is where this is one of the areas where it actually simulates actual economics in that there's a system by which you figure out who is able to sell to each house. And it's basically whichever one's cheapest. And so you can get into these price wars where you're buying people to discount your prices, which obviously let you fulfill, you know, get the scoop on those on those sales, but your prices are lower so you're getting less money per unit than than anything else. And then you can also buy a person called the luxury manager, which increases your price by $10, which doubles it, in which case you're just hedging on the rest of the people not being able to fulfill all the desires of the houses and then just snagging what's left, which I think is a really cool part of the game, although it hasn't seen a ton of success yet. You have to pick your spots with it. It can be very lucrative but you can also just get shut out. I came in a solid second place with it. I think that one is very favorable to longer games where you're building a lot of houses because there comes a certain point at which it's very difficult for enough food to be produced to satisfy all of the desires of the houses. Yeah, I think if you go luxury manager, and we haven't seen this yet, I would love to see someone try it. Just go with a luxury manager toward the mid-game, but be building tons of houses in the meantime that's what i tried to do last time i just didn't execute it yeah right. it didn't get off well, the you were really then. late to the yeah, house I, building I, part I, I had a slow a slow start which put me way behind my strategy which wasn't quite well defined enough maybe because it's the second time we've played <laughs> but i never quite capitalized on that turn where i make hundreds of dollars off the luxury manager Going back to how important the early game is, you have these milestone cards, and I would say, what, two-thirds of them are going to be filled within the first four or five turns? Yeah, if not more than that, yes. They're almost entirely based on your first few actions, and they give very significant benefits. They're generally the first person to do something, and a lot of them are the first person to take an early action or play a early person in your uh, management tree. So you have to choose which people you're going to target with your first couple turns, determining which milestones you earn, because once someone earns a milestone, no one else can get it after that round. For instance, to my mind, one of the most significant ones is the first person to train someone milestone. And what that does is it gives you a $15 discount on salaries for the rest of the game and salaries no matter if it's you know the pizza cook or the executive vice president is always five dollars per person 
And so it lets you upgrade and train people at a much faster rate, which really gives you a boost in that kind of early to mid game. It gives you a big buffer in not having to have income before you can afford to hire and train higher level people, which can really accelerate your engine. And it's all things like that where you just get a big boost to it. One of the other ones is the first person to advertise any particular item gets $5 bonus on that item for the rest of the game, which can add up to a lot of money. Yeah, the base price for each item is $10, so it's a 50% bonus for each item you sell. Again, this is why the game is going to be very hard to new players, because they're not necessarily going to understand or be able to strategize on the importance of these milestone cards, but it creates a really interesting strategy after a couple of plays where you sit down to the game, you look over your little menu player aid, and you're like, okay, what direction do I want to take now? And in your first three turns, you've determined that direction and you're off. Like, every single turn in this game is important. And almost more so, the early turns are more important than anything else because, you know, the bonuses you get set the tone to how you're going to be able to build your corporate structure. And you can pivot later on once you have more recruiting girls and trainers and whatever, but you'll be so far behind other people that you're losing out on a lot of efficiency. Yeah, and one of the ways this game is great is that there are at least two, three, four very distinct and clear early game paths that all seem pretty viable and then you can differentiate you know later on but i think it's remarkable that there are at least you know, what three probably super early game paths that you can take and then build off of and expand into different routes yeah i would say there are at least three clear distinct viable early game paths just thinking from a design standpoint that must have been really hard to do yeah, so in our last game, I think we all went for a different opening. Mark went for a boom strat to hire a ton of people. Which worked phenomenally. Yeah, it worked really well. worked well. I went for something else that didn't work. It's not to say that the decisions you make in the first couple of turns lock you into anything. There are tons of variations in how you can play it out, but it, it locks you into a strategy in a very open sense, but not a constrained sense. Well, getting the milestones gives you a huge leg up on other players doing something in that direction. Right, which again, from a design standpoint, I think it's really remarkable how well they pulled that off. That you have these openings. In, in any game where I can say, oh, there are three different openings, those are games I typically like. You should play chess more often, <laughs> That's yes, just what I was thinking. Kill me, because I'm horrible at chess. But... Any game you can talk about that way, I don't know, it, it makes me feel good in the little nerd inside of me on the inside. As opposed to the big nerd on the outside? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't even know what I was saying. They managed to make the milestones so significant, yet not constraining. Yeah, because after the first couple turns, you have to respond to what everyone else is doing. Because if someone else starts marketing burgers, you have to decide, am I going to compete with them on burgers, or am I going to do my own marketing and push pizza? Or I'm going to try to flood the market with desire for Coke and have this drink monopoly based on my initial restaurant position because I have the drink route planned out. Yeah, there, there's so many variations and so many ways you can do it. I think that is true. I, I, one of the important things for us to mention is that we all have only played this game twice and there's a whole field of strategies out there that we have not even explored yet so I, and, I, I, and there are a lot of interesting interactions that i think will come up late game one thing that we've kind of danced around is there's a lot that's indirect in this game and those interactions are going to be interesting the better we, we get at the game yeah we haven't seen like a legitimate price war yet yeah, which seems really plausible. Yeah. Oh, yeah, completely. We had a, a very small one in the first game that we played. Yeah, not nearly but, as much in the second. Yeah. You guys just let me dominate with low, well, slightly I, I, lower prices. I, I think game. what it ended up being is that Orion and Matt both went for the luxury manager. 
and I did not, and there wasn't one for me to get. You lowered your prices. I didn't lower mine. I still sold out of food every time, so I didn't have to lower prices because the only thing that would have done for me would have been giving me a lower profit margin on the food. Yeah, that I was that's selling. true. Yeah, because two people did go for the luxury manager. The thing with actually selling food is there's so many factors that you have to set up and account for. Is you have to have your production in place, which requires a corporate structure. Then you have to have enough marketing or be able to read what marketing is out there to have the actual desires and then you have to have the price the combination of price and location on the board to actually be able to serve those houses and compete against the other players so there's not a s easy road of I'm going to build a new location and then I'm going to hire a cook and then I'm going to sell a million burgers and become rich you have to balance all these things and there's no clear linear strategy and you have to always be adapting and reacting to what people are doing on the board even though you have no actions that directly affect other pillars. A really bizarre part of this game is at the beginning everyone collectively chooses how long the game is going to be in secret. So you have these three cards 100, 200, and 300 dollars and everyone puts one of them down face down in a pile and once you break the bank, so once you run out of the initial money yeah, that you the, have in the bank... The bank is seated with initial $50 per person. Once you break that bank, you reveal these cards and then put that much money totaled into the bank. And when that runs out, the game's over. You know, I don't for, know in how a four well... a game, that second reserve could range from 400 to $1,200. Yeah, but I think it's always going to tend toward the middle... On average, you'd expect somewhere around $200 per person, but you don't know until that point in the game, so you have to be able to adapt to, oh, this game is going to be over in four turns, or I have 12 turns to really build an efficient engine and pump out money. Yeah, I guess, I guess a barometer for how well you would like this game is how well you like the idea of planning in the long term and calculating in the long term while simultaneously reacting to the state of the board and then how you think the state of the board will change based on other people's buying decisions and actions. Like, there's a lot of long-term strategy, but it's also incredibly it, reactive. And then it all comes down to a few turns at the end of the game. So this is where maybe my board game playing temperament shies away from this sort of game a little bit more than you guys, where... All this positioning and strategy building and, and building your, your corporate structure is all interesting, but really it just comes down to those last few turns when there are tons of desires out there. You have increased your profit margins by getting a CFO or something. And so if, if you're not prepared at that moment, you could end up basically getting nothing. Yeah. Yeah, it's really a game that builds up and ramps up fast yeah and if yeah. you're if you're not okay with playing a game where a few turns out you could either be the runaway victor or get nothing then you're not gonna like this it's not a, it's not a game where you see the rewards paid out along the way yeah there's a lot of disconnect between your actions now and how that's going to play out later in the game. But I think part of that's just our inexperience. Once we play the game more and understand it better, we'll be able to make those calculations and predictions a lot better. I, th I think that's true. Yeah. I think we'll be able to recognize better what a good position is and be able to shape our strategy to get to that point, well, better than kind of fumbling around for it. Yeah. The closest analog to this game, at least that I've played is dominant species. I think they're very similar in that they're both heavy Euro games, they both have a lot of long-term planning, and they're both very, very mean. If you don't like mean games, if you don't like games where your plans may go completely awry and it's because you didn't predict or calculate something, you know, three or four turns ahead of time, then this is not the game for you. But for me, I love mean Euro games, and I just want to play it again right now. I would differentiate it in the sense that there's 
not much that you can directly attack another player. So it's not mean in the sense of the players are trying to kill each other, but it's mean in the sense of you can get blown out and just be stuck in a horrible position and lose very bad. It's mean in the sense that this is this is a free market and you might just get <laughs> driven out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And to me, that's the best kind of mean game is the is the game right, where right. if you yeah. get destroyed and blown out, it's because you weren't as good Absolutely. as the other players, and that's... not because someone decided to attack you. Another random thought that just came to my mind is, and this is something I've been thinking about in terms of an article I might write at some point, and that's the idea of build orders. So back yeah. in college, Ryan and I played a lot of Age of Empires 2, and in those kinds of real-time strategy games, you know, at the high, lo- high levels of play, you have a build order. In other words, the first, we had, what, the first 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes of our games pretty much memorized? Yeah, it was basically, I'm going to build four villagers and gather this resource, and then the next four are going to gather this resource, and then I'm going to build this specific building and advance through the technology tree. And I think for both Scythe and Food Chain Magnate, they're both games where once you get good at the game, you will probably have a build order for the beginning. Particularly for Food Chain Magnate, it really drives home that. But I think for Scythe, you can... Once you're good at Scythe, you can probably look at your player board and look at your special character and say, okay, this is the order I'm going to take the actions. I'll know how to economize that early mid-game yeah. to the T. The interesting thing about Scythe is that it gives the variety so interestingly. Like, there are 16 different combinations. So, yes, you're right, but you'll probably never play every opening board, and therefore you'll at least have to adapt every time. Right. You know, at super competitive levels, you'll probably have build orders memorized, but you can probably get to a level pretty quick where you can get close to an optimal early build order. And I think, you know, obviously the same thing in Food Chain Magnate, where you can have a strategy and you say, I'm going to go through these seven, eight turns, and that's going to get you through the bank breaking, and it's going to be more or less optimized. I think Food Chain Magnate is better equipped to not lose its fun once you get to that level because there's so much you have to react to and there's enough variability in the way the map is randomly constructed and the other strategies that people take and I guess there's just more there's more interaction there than with Scythe where I think it'll hold up to that level of play a little bit better than Scythe. I think it comes from the interaction although we've theorized about how if we were better at Scythe, we'd probably attack each other more often. I think it's that Food Chain Magnet is innately interacting with the other players. It all comes down to can you beat the other players in the market that will give it replayability. Even when you're not doing anything that's affecting the market or affecting the player board, every decision you make has to consider the actions that everyone else at the table has played. I guess that's my main point, is that I think that that aspect of the game is a beautiful design. And if you've seen my written review, you know that I gave it an 8.5. I think it could go even higher than that. Again, the closest analog is a, is Dominant Species, which I think I've rated a 9. And I think it might be a better game than Dominant Species. Like, this could easily go up into my top 10, I think. I could see it being a better game, but not as much fun. Yeah, Dominant Species, is, the theme is really fun there. Oh, it's the best theme. So mean, though. I think it's equally mean. I guess more directly mean. I think Food Chain Magnet can be brutal or harsh, but Dominant Species can be mean. Yeah, you can certainly directly target people a lot more in Dominant Species. Anyway, Food Chain Magnet, I think we're... Are we unanimous here that this is our favorite of the three? Absolutely. I like Scythe better. Oh, okay, you're going to be the odd man. You're a terrible person. (laughs) So, three of the four of us, I think, do we all rank Blood Rage as the lowest of the three? Yeah. Yeah. I I haven't played Scythe enough to definitively say that, but based on the one play that I've had, yes. I think these are two great games, and certainly I think your board gaming disposition is going to determine whether you like Food Chain Magnet or not. There are a lot more people who love board games who won't like Food Chain Magnet. Yes, Scythe is certainly much more likable 
and accessible. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So looking again, finally, at, at the top 100, Food Chain Magnate is at 29. It's the lowest of the three we talked about. Should it be higher? Yes. Absolutely. That's not the question you asked for the other ones. I think it's reasonable <laughs> right there. That's good. I think it and Scythe should swap. I think Scythe is pretty good down there at 29, and I think Food Chain Magnate would be perfectly fine in the top 10. It's a good game. If you have the money, because it, it is expensive. Uh, didn't, it, small print. didn't it just go out of print forever? Well, no, they announced that they're not going to do another print run. I know it's available on Amazon still, and Cool Stuff Inc. said they have over 20 copies. So if the game interests you, please go read my review, which goes into a lot more detail about the game. And if you've got, it's what, 90 bucks on Cool Stuff? I think I got it on sale for 90 bucks. It. I think retail. I think you for, got on sale for like seventy or eighty, right? Oh, uh, maybe. I think it can retail for over a hundred, but you can find it on sale for seventy to ninety. Yeah, I think MSRP is one hundred and twenty, but it looks like online it's going to be around ninety to a hundred. So if you have the money and it interests you, look up my review, and if that confirms it, I think you should pull the trigger on it. It's really a fantastic game, and I think it's just going to get better the more I play it. So there we have it. Three of the most talked about popular games of the last couple of years. There are a couple that I haven't been able to play yet. Terraforming Mars is definitely on that list. I want to play that. It's It looks really cool and it's gotten a lot of praise. Gloomhaven looks awesome. I might jump in the second printing Kickstarter when, it, when that comes out in a couple of days. Because I love the idea of dungeon crawlers, but I mean, Descent's good, but I feel like there's a lot of potential there for a great dungeon crawl game that's just magnificent. But, I mean, looking ahead, like, board games look really good right now. The one I'm most anticipating is Near and Far, which I <sighs> kickstarted, which I saw a preview for the other day from Gamma. They had the final complete edition, and it looks really good. So I'm for going to force you all... To play that a lot so I can get a review out. Oh man, while you're twisting my arm. I'm excited for Pandemic Legacy Season 2. Oh baby. Oh yeah, that's, that I think they're exciting. saying August for that one. Have you seen the board, <sighs> the game lot. board picture that was released? Yeah, I saw that. It, it's not Earth. What is it? What? It's, well, it might it's be Earth, Earth, but it looks like some weird, oddly shaped Pangea? Island. So, I don't know. I don't know if it's Alien. It's I don't after know the storm. it's a made up island or well, some I like ice age thing. Yeah, I read the the blurb that they had. I think it's like 40 years after the disease wiped out most of the planet. Oh, so you're, they're you're, assuming that you're you ready lost to, season 1. You lost season 1 <laughs> and now you're ready to go back out into the world and you know, start finding what's left of the the planet. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. So yeah, that's uh, that's three of the top games. I hope you uh, found this interesting. Again, we highly recommend you check out Scythe and Food Chain Magnate. A lot of people like Blood Rage. We're not so hot in it, but you know it could get it could improve over time. I'm willing to give it a, a few more plays. And uh, just remember, as George Bernard Shaw once said, "We don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing." Guys, we're never gonna get old. <laughs> this is great. I love this. <laughs> and don't forget to uh, check out the website, thethoughtfulgamer.com. Go ahead and follow me on Twitter or Facebook. I, I post there a lot about things. And remember to please review and rate this podcast because it helps us get more visibility and move us up on the rankings so that more people find out about us. Until next time, my, again, my name is Mark here with Matt, Ben, and Orion. Thanks. Thanks, thanks for listening. And cut. Bam. <laughs> Done.